The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, the scripture reading for this morning is going to be taken from Luke chapter 22, verse 47 to 62. And uh, the title of the message is pretty straightforward. It's just Peter uh, denies Jesus. And so we want to look at that particular part of this uh, passion narrative as Jesus gets ready to go to the cross. And so it reads, starting in verse 47, uh, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he wept, and he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, through this Lent season, we meditate on the sufferings of Jesus and think of all that he endured on our behalf. And so as we look at the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter, we pray that our eyes would be open to understand what the meaning of these events are for our lives and help us to really understand the nature of the kingdom that you purchased with your own blood. Open our eyes to see what you're asking of us as your disciples. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back in 2001, uh, I went with a group of pastors on this extensive mission trip through the Middle East and Africa. We visited about six, seven different countries together. And by then, I had already uh, been to Africa at least about a half dozen times leading uh, college students on short-term mission teams. But in those trips, we always stayed at these mission bases, you know, where, or some other uh, reserved compound where the team got to stay. Um, but when we got to Kenya, the host missionary there 
uh, wanted us as pastors to experience what it truly is like to live like a Kenyan. And so he separated us, and he assigned us to different Kenyan families uh, throughout the country, actually. So we all got on our own buses, <laughs> and we rode off to these homes to, to live for a while with these Kenyan families. And among the pastors, I had been to Africa the most, and so he assigned to me the most difficult and remote location. So I ended up actually living in this mud hut uh, with no running water and no electricity. I found out later that some of these guys almost stayed in hotel-like conditions. I was really bitter after, that, after I found that out, you know. Um, so there I was in the middle of what seemed to me like nowhere in Kenya. And uh, we ate dinner together with the host family. And then that first night, we sat around in a circle in, if you could call it that, their living room. And we talked for a couple hours about farming corn, okay, which I knew nothing about. Um, in the pitch dark, okay, it was pitch black in their living room. They had this tiny little kerosene lantern that was burning in the corner, but it was so dim that, I, honest to God, it was like sitting in a black closet, okay? It was just the most bizarre experience. I kept wondering, is someone going to like turn on a light here or something like that so we could actually see each other? Um, but that's how we spent the whole night. I learned more about corn farming than I ever wanted to do in my life. The family has to actually walk several miles every day to fetch enough water for cooking and bathing and everything that they needed that day. And so each morning, they would give me this plastic basin with only about like five, six cups of water in it that I would take to their backyard, and I would use it to brush my teeth, to shave, and if I had enough water left over, to wash my face, okay? Um, for days, I ate nothing but unseasoned corn mush and bitter greens. No meat. And the whole experience was very eye-opening and interesting at first. <laughs> but it got old really fast, you know. Um, and for the first time, despite all those other short-term mission trips I had taken, I began to understand what it really was like to live like a Kenyan, to experience their world. And as hard as that adjustment was for me, it's nothing compared with what Jesus must have experienced when he left the comforts of heaven to become a man. You know, it, it genuinely baffles me that Jesus didn't come 2,000 years later when he could have gotten around in cars and enjoyed comforts like central heat and air conditioning. Um, and instead of walking from village to village preaching the good news, he could have posted his messages on his own YouTube channel, you know, and gotten around on Uber or something like that. Um, the other aspect of his incarnation that has always confused me is this idea that God becoming man so that he could identify with our sufferings didn't make sense, you know? The way I think about it is like, if God can do everything, if he's all-powerful, then 
He should be able to empathize with the human condition without actually having to become a man, right? It's, like, it's not like he has to become one of us to supernaturally know what we go through as human beings in this life. And being all-powerful, I think he very well could empathize with us without becoming one of us. But I think that his identification with humanity was more for us than it was for him. In other words, what I'm saying is there is a world of difference between telling someone that you can imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes and actually walking a mile in those shoes. I mean, would you rather be comforted in your grieving over the loss of someone by somebody who tells you that they read a book on grief (laughs) or somebody who actually lost a loved one and says, I know that pain firsthand. It wasn't the time period in which Jesus lived that made life so difficult for him. Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah said, was a man of sorrow, a man of sorrow, because he suffered in so many ways, growing up poor, misunderstood by his family, rejected by the very ones he loved, falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit, growing up fatherless. We already went through some of this list, and it's just one thing after another. And as we looked at last week, in the Garden of Gethsemane, bracing himself to take on himself the sin of the whole world. I think one event that greatly added to his pain in his final hours on earth, was the betrayal of Judas, one of his very own disciples. Imagine for a minute if one of your closest friends did this to you. Imagine helping a guy out for years, patiently counseling him through his personal struggles, being a sympathetic ear when he needed somebody to listen to, Sacrificing your own time and money to support him when he was down and out, his moments of need. And to your face, he tells you how indebted he is to you and how thankful he is for your friendship. And he's just singing your praises to your face. But then you find out that behind your back, he's been spreading horrible lies and rumors about you to all your other friends. And on top of that, you find out that he has gossiped about some very sensitive things that you once confessed to him in confidence. And he even exaggerates or distorts the facts to put you in the worst possible light. If you've ever experienced any kind of betrayal that even resembles that, maybe you can begin to understand what Jesus must have felt when Judas betrayed him. Except that Judas didn't just gossip about him but he actually handed Jesus over to the very people who wanted to kill him. And he did it in the most cruel way imaginable, with a kiss that's supposed to represent love and friendship. In another gospel, the actual specific word that's used for a kiss, it implies that Judas gave Jesus a really long, intimate kiss, almost as if to rub it in his face. Psalm 55, verse 12 to 13, a messianic psalm, says of Jesus, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. 
But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend. This is the pain that Jesus experienced when Judas betrayed him. The other disciples are totally caught off guard. And so they ask Jesus if they ought to fight back. If you remember from that conversation during the Last Supper, they report to Jesus that among them, two of them are armed and dangerous, right? Two of them are wielding swords. And before Jesus could even reply, one of them takes action, whipping out his sword, and with a lot of enthusiasm, but not very good coordination, <laughs> he cuts off the right ear of this high priest's servant. And guess which disciple that is? <laughs> Luke doesn't actually tell us, but John tells us it was Peter. And so Jesus heals this guy's ear, and he says, don't do this. Luke chapter 22, verse 52 to 53 says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against them, Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Matthew's gospel gives us some more detail about what Jesus said to his disciples at the moment of his arrest. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 to 54, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus tells his disciples, all I have to do is ask. And my Father would send a legion in Roman military terms, was about 5,000 soldiers. And so he says, all I have to do is ask, and at my beck and call, God would send over 60,000 angels to rescue me. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there's a story in which a single angel sent by God kills over 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep, okay? One angel killing 185,000 soldiers in one night. You do the math, okay? Jesus says, I don't need your help. I'm not in distress here. Jesus' point is this. I am not a helpless victim of the events that are unfolding here. But everything has to take place like this because if it doesn't, I cannot complete my mission of going to the cross. And so Jesus is arrested and brought to the high priest's house where his trial is about to begin. And we're going to look more closely at the details of this trial next week, in next week's sermon. But in today's message, I want to look at the drama that unfolds not in the high priest's house, but in the outer courtyard where Peter is hanging around. All the disciples run away and hide, afraid for their lives despite all of their bravado and claims that they would stay with Jesus. Peter is the only one who doesn't completely abandon him. But he is lurking in the shadows. He is barely holding on by a thread here. Eventually, out there in the courtyard, he's confronted by the servant girl who recognizes him and says, Man, you're one of them. I know you. I've seen you with Jesus. And Peter immediately denies it and says, I have no association with this guy. I don't know what you're talking about here. 
Well, later that night, he's confronted again by a different person who again says, man, I swear you're one of his followers. I know it. I've seen you with him. And again, Peter claims mistaken identity. I'm not one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Luke tells us about an hour later, he's confronted a third time by someone who insists that Peter has to be one of the disciples. And the reason he gives is because you are a Galilean. Historians tell us that what that indicates is that he must have given his identity away by his accent, the Galilean accent. And they know that Jesus is from Galilee. And so it would be like someone accusing you here in Chicagoland of coming from the South. And you reply something like, I don't even know what y'all are even talking about. Y'all are crazy. <laughs> like, I grew up here riding Chicago. I'm sorry, I don't have a good Southern accent. I don't even know if this is a Southern accent. I'm trying my best here. But it'd be like saying, like, I grew up right here in Chicago, you know? And they're saying, dude, you're not from around here. It's so obvious. You're one of his followers, aren't you? And it says, it says in verse 60, Peter says, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, before I won't go on, I want to make an observation about the events that unfolded that led to Peter's denial of Jesus because I think it helps us to understand our own struggle to take a stand for him. Remember earlier in the Last Supper, that earlier that evening, when Peter confidently claimed that he would follow Jesus to prison and even to death? I think Peter honestly meant it at the time. But I also think that there were some unspoken assumptions that Peter was making about the nature of what Jesus would do that day. Peter was ready to follow Jesus like a faithful and loyal soldier follows his general into battle. He could sense that everything was building up to a final climax in Jerusalem. The revolution was about to begin. Jesus was going to take his throne. And he had followed Jesus long enough. He had witnessed enough miracles to know that Jesus could command great power from God. He can change weather patterns. He can raise the dead. He can cast out demons. And so I think that was Peter's mindset when he made that claim to Jesus. I will fight with you, Jesus, because I think he assumed that Jesus was going to fight. And so not surprisingly, it was Peter who drew his sword and took the first strike, thinking, Viva la revolution, right? The revolution is starting with this. I think that Peter assumed that Jesus was going to respond from a position of strength. So imagine Peter's surprise when Jesus doesn't even resist his arrest, but cooperates with his captors without even putting up a fight. This is a battle that Peter does not understand how to fight. In fact, he gets rebuked by Jesus for even trying to fight back. So Peter follows his leader, dazed and confused, and now much more cautious and calculating than he was before. I think Peter's thought was this. 
How do you follow a leader who is willing to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? How do you stand up for someone who won't stand up for himself? I think in Peter's mind, he's thinking, things are not looking very good for Jesus right now. Maybe I picked the wrong team. Maybe he isn't who he claimed to be. I don't know what's happening here because it wasn't supposed to unfold like this. And I think the truth is you and I face the same challenge that Peter did in our day. If we're on God's side, why does it often feel like we're on the losing team? Why does it seem like often God just sits silently while the world mocks him? Why doesn't he more forcefully make his presence known and silence his critics and put to shame his enemies? Why does it seem like God often just sits on his hands and lets the world do this to him? Peter learned the lesson that many of us have also had to learn the hard way as his followers. It's much easier to be bold about your faith in private, isn't it? Than it is to take a stand for Jesus in a hostile world. I think being a Christian feels a lot like being a Cubs fan until last year, right? It was so easy to be a Cubs fan last year, right? After all, how hard is it to rally around world champions? But you could discern the resentment in the true Cubs fans last year. The true diehard Cubs fans who are asking, where were you in the last decade? Or during the 90s, or 80s, or 70s, you know, or 60s. You can go on and on, but we'll just stop there. When it was embarrassing to be a Cubs fan, you know, where were you? Um, David Gooding says this about what Peter must have been going through that night. By this time, most of the disciples had run off and abandoned Christ. Peter, to his eternal credit, be it said, had at least followed him. But all of a sudden, he now found himself ranged on the wrong side in the battle. He had not intended it, but he had not perceived the nature of the battle, nor the weapons and the resources with which it is ultimately won. The battle is between the truth and the lie, the truth being ultimately a person. It is settled not by physical force. How could it be? But by spiritual strength. As Gooding points out, what appears to be a sign of weakness in the eyes of the world was actually the very means of gaining the victory in the eyes of God. I think people mistakenly interpret even the Apostle Paul's humility for weakness, mocking him. What they were accusing him is, is Paul, you're so tough in your letters. You write like such a tough guy. But when you're in person, you're like a little mouse. <laughs> you're like a wimp. And this is what Paul responded to his critics in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am, quote, timid when face to face with you, but, quote, bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What Paul is saying is, as Christians, we don't retaliate when we're attacked. We don't try to gain power like the world tries to seize power. Instead, we fight on our knees in the spiritual realms. We pray for even those who would try to hurt us. We follow the example of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way we fight is we love our enemies. We turn the other cheek. We don't try to force God's hand, but wait patiently on his timing. And by faith, persevere until he opens the doors or moves the mountains. I think that is something that Peter needed to learn that day when Jesus let let himself be arrested. But he couldn't learn it until he came to the end of himself. In verses 61 to 62, it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Those bitter tears that Peter wept that night were the first steps in rebuilding his life. Not around this false confidence that he had in himself. Though everyone else betray you, I never will. I'm better than that, Jesus. You should know me by now. That whole structure had to be tear- torn down. And now Jesus had to build something completely different in Peter's life. It's interesting. Many have speculated the expression on Jesus' face when he looked at Peter. And I always, I mean, it's just human nature, right? I always imagine that Jesus just gave him one of those looks of, you know, like, like disgust. You're like, dude, just, just look at you right now, you know? Because like, I know that's the look I would give to Peter if he did that to me. But I, I think we have to envision the look that Jesus gave in light of what he had told Peter earlier because this wasn't a surprise to Jesus, right? It wasn't. In fact, Jesus said, I already know what you're going to do, Peter. I know that you're going to betray me. Remember what he said in verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's failure didn't catch Jesus by surprise. And so I think the look that Jesus gave Peter that day was one of love and encouragement, trying to remind him of his earlier words to him. I already told you you're going to fail. You're going to fall on your face. But fight for your faith and don't give up, Peter. It's interesting that three days later after Jesus had already died, some women came to his tomb. And their intention was to cover the body with incense to try to mask the stench of decay from his corpse. And what they discovered instead when they got there was the huge stone that was in front of the tomb was rolled away. 
And sitting inside there was a man dressed in white, an angel. Mark chapter 16, verse 6 to 7, it says, Don't be alarmed, he said, speaking of the angel. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He has gone ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter is singled out in this message to the disciples. It's as if God knew that Peter needed special encouragement for a disciple who felt that he had blown it and turned his back on God. And so the angel says, go tell all the disciples and Peter to go to Galilee and wait for their master there. Commenting on this verse, Max Lucado writes, if I might paraphrase the words, don't stay here. Go tell the disciples a pause, then a smile, and especially tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. What a line. It's as if all of heaven had watched Peter fall. And it's as if all of heaven wanted to help him back up again. Be sure and tell Peter that he's not left out. You're still one of the disciples, Peter. You're still included in God's plan. Peter and the disciples eventually make their way up to Galilee, where they're originally from, many of them. And while they're waiting for Jesus to appear, it's kind of interesting that um, they decide to go fishing, and it's Peter's idea. He says, uh, you know what, I'm going to go, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to go fishing. And he picks up the nets that he had left behind in order to follow Jesus. During that night, they catch nothing, and then they see this mysterious figure at the shore that says, hey, friends, what are you doing? Oh, we're fishing. Have you caught anything? No. Why don't you try casting it on the other side? And they do, and they catch so many fish that they can't even haul the net into the boat. And immediately, Peter recognizes what's going on. And impulsive as always, he just jumps into the water and starts swimming to the shore because he knows it's Jesus. Jesus repeated the first miracle that he used when he called Peter as a disciple. And it's as if Jesus was sending a message to his fallen disciple to say, do you now finally understand the meaning of that miracle? What I did those years ago when I first called you. Do you finally understand, Peter? Without me, Peter, you can do nothing. But with me, anything is possible. It's interesting that when they finally get to shore, there's already a campfire that Jesus made. And there's some fish already roasting on the fire. And Jesus says, come, let's eat breakfast together. And then Jesus says something interesting to Peter. He says, do you love me more than these? And a lot of people think that Jesus is pointing to the fish and saying, do you love me more than these fish? I don't know. That doesn't make much sense to me, okay? I think what Jesus was doing was he was pointing to the other disciples. And he was saying, do you really love me more than these guys love me? Because remember Peter's claim earlier, right? Even if every one of these deadbeat friends of mine abandons you, 
I will not abandon you. That was his claim, right? Now in the face of his failure, it's like Jesus and all of his friends who witnessed him crash and burn says, so tell me again, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? And what Jesus was doing was he was restoring him. Saying, yes, love me like you first claimed. But not by your strength, by your faithfulness, but by my mercy and my grace toward you. That was what Jesus did for Peter that day. And that's the lesson you and I need to learn, is the lesson of discipleship failure. There are going to be seasons in your life when you're not going to live up to the commitments that you make to Christ. And there may be even seasons dark enough in your life where you may wonder, I think I've crossed a bridge that I cannot come back from. I think I've burned that bridge, in fact. And the lesson that we learn from Peter is this. God already knows your failures and your sins. And he says it doesn't rest on your ability to make it through this race by your strength. Keep your eyes on me, and I will get you to the end of this race. Let's pray.